Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8, picking up right where we left off. And we are in, um, we're in the middle of Samuel having complete civil and spiritual authority over the nation of Israel, over God's people. And uh, Samuel takes it seriously. He's making his rounds every year between cities. So he's going out and doing kind of administration work. Uh, Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass, uh, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and preferred justice. Man, this just keeps happening. So we start the introduction into the next phase of Israel's life. They're going from a theocracy to a monarchy. And this is the beginning of that transition. So far, God has always picked the judges. And he's going to pick their first king. And that's kind of what we're on tonight is how that first king gets picked. Um, And Samuel, we see, has fallen into the same issues that Eli had. He's got two sons that have been raised in the ministry and just see it as an opportunity to benefit themselves Uh, Joel and Abijah are Jehovah God and Father Jehovah. So you've got two kids that were named well, and they were raised in the kingdom, but it just shows us once again that our faith isn't genetic. We don't get our faith from our parents. You don't inherit it, and you're not doomed to it. Um, But it's a choice that we have to make with each generation. You have to pursue God yourself. So you couldn't pick a better dad when it comes to spiritual direction than Samuel. But that direction has to become Joel and Abijah's, and it's not. It says they're in Beersheba. If you look this up on a map, there's the route that Samuel takes, which is pretty much in the middle of the country, right around the tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Judah. And then there's Beersheba. (laughs) So it seems like, in that sense, just geographically, Samuel's made a little better choice than Eli. Samuel doesn't let these two guys stay in his house. He sends them to Beersheba to go be judges down in there. Um, but that puts them pretty far out of the loop of where most of the people are populating Israel at this point in time. So they get sent to the, you know, Siberia, and they get to go be judges there. So unlike the other two who are sitting right at the Ark of the Covenant. So then, verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, look, you're old. And, And again, the Israelites are very blunt. Look, you're old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Two-sentence request. Ramah is where uh, Samuel's at, verse 4. That's his hometown. It seems like as the ark left Shiloh, Shiloh ended. Because if Samuel's doing his tour, and Shiloh's not included, and he resides at Ramah, it means that the worship of God has moved at this point. It's kind of in flux. And it doesn't say where the tabernacle is, but it does say in the last chapter that he built an altar at Ramah, which is where he kind of did his work. So the nation is is 
overall coming to Samuel. They recognize him as leader. Uh, again, one, two, three, they gather, they come to God's representative, and they, they recognize what ungodly worship, leadership looks like. So this is an Israel that's kind of come a long way, if you think about it, from their beginning. Like, they're understanding these things on their own, and before they kind of went their own way in the book of Judges. But here we see an Israel that's kind of recognizing a real problem. Samuel, you can't just hand off leadership to your kids because they're jerks. Um, so Gideon, uh, of course, refused the kingship in Judges 8. But here we see this request for kinship coming from the people. So in the same way that they went to Gideon and he refused it, they're going to Samuel. And I think Samuel's a little bit miffed by this. We'll see in the next few verses. Um, but God already predicted this would happen. Nothing's happening here that wasn't predicted. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come into the land which the Lord God gives you, and you shall possess it and dwell therein, I shall say, I will set it, you, you, you will say, I will... I will set a king over me like all the nations that are about me. So God knew this was going to happen. That doesn't mean God wanted this to happen. He just knew it would and that this is the way it goes. So the judges didn't govern in a permanent sense. They stepped up when their leadership was needed. In the day-to-day -day life of people, we don't always need a government in our life to just conduct our lives. So in the world of judges, there really wasn't an established standing government. And this is one of the things the founding fathers in America, they didn't want a standing military for very similar reasons. Like, we don't want to have that as an existing thing. We rise a military up when we need a military. And they were trying to model that after the Old Testament. So likewise here, this is one of the reasons why Samuel doesn't necessarily like this, is they don't want that. So it's wise for them to go to Samuel. Uh, it's not so wise what they're asking, because the rationale they give is that they want to be like other nations, verse 5. Um, so that marks a significant shift, and the reason for it is they want to be more like the world. So I think Samuel's going to honor that. It displeased him, verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Just that little bit, like you get this glimpse of who Samuel was. He didn't like it, but even though he didn't like it, he didn't just knee-jerk react to it. His reaction was, okay, well, let me take that to the Lord. That should kind of be our reaction from leadership positions with any decision we have to make. Whether or not we're for it or against it doesn't matter. What matters is if God is for it or against it. So, and, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Gosh, that's really sad. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, and they are, they are doing to you also. So when it says Samuel is displeased, it seems like God spends more of his time in response to deal with Samuel's like, state of heart. Do you see that? Like He answers the question, you're going to actually give them their king, but then he spends the next few verses, or the verses 7 and 8, just kind of consoling Samuel for the situation, which implies that Samuel's feelings were kind of hurt by this. Like, why do you need this when that's not what they want? So in verse 8, it says, according to all the works, God is judging them based on what they've done. And those works are things that they're holding into account. It says, they've forsaken me. Again, that's not necessarily hatred, it's neglect. They've gone after these other gods, which, which doesn't necessarily mean they reject Yahweh. It just means they take Yahweh and they mix it in with the things of the world. And God sees that, and he sees that kind of passive, ignoring the things of God, and, he, and God takes it in stride. 
Um, the idea of coming from Egypt even to this day, verse 8. God's proven everything we've read to this point in the Bible. God's always proven himself faithful to Israel. They keep going off in their own direction. I know a bunch of folks went off to see the movie, The, the Redeemed, the Redeeming Love movie, and you're all in you know, waterworks with tears, and you see this image of just a husband that wants you know, a bride, and the bride is in this trap of sin, and she can't get out. She doesn't want to get out. She gets lured back in. She goes back in. And that's how God's been dealing with Israel this whole time. So when he's talking to Samuel, he's alluding to that kind of relationship. He's done everything he can do to show them love. And they just keep going after things of the world. And at some level, just the tone of this kind of strikes that note. It doesn't change. Even when Jesus stands in front of Pilate, the crowd says, because they're like, is this your king? And the crowd says, we have no king but Caesar, John 19, 15. Like the idea that the people just see their king as a human being instead of God himself, the people really don't change in this light. So if they don't follow a king in heaven, they've got to follow a king on earth. And it's how people are wired. Um, so maybe it's that they want an immediate king that's standing right there. You know, and, and, and then he's going to even give them that in the person of Jesus, and they still don't want to follow him. So it's not about you, Samuel. It's about me. It's about who I am that they're rejecting. Verse 9, Now therefore heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Samuel, uh, we, I feel like we keep hitting this theme, this idea of, like, sometimes you got to be truthful with people, but the way to do it is to do it in love. So he's telling Samuel, you're going to give them what they want. They're going to get their king, but you need to do this solemn forewarning thing. God is just. If you want to go that way, that's fine, but here's what's going to happen. And the reason God tells them what's going to happen is because when it does, they can hopefully repent and come back. You can go do that thing that you really want to do with all your heart, and I'm not going to talk you out of it, but when you do and this happens, come back to the Lord and return to where you were in the first place. So he hands authority over to humans, but he does that knowing that we know how to count the cost, and he does that. So, verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked for him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. That doesn't sound like a good job. Um, he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow the ground and reap the harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give, them to, give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and your finest of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your, because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. You, you, you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. So 
when, you, when this all goes wrong and then you're feeling sorry for yourself, the Lord's not going to feel sorry for you with you because he warned you. Kids, if you touch the light socket, it will shock you. So when you touch the life socket and it shocks you, I don't have a lot of pity for you. You decided to find that out for yourself the hard way. And there's the hard way and there's the easy way. So there's problems with monarchies. Primarily here, the problems that are listed are all financial. Pretty much governments suck at leaving your money in your pocket. They like to take it. And that's not a political commentary. It's just how governments work. They soak resources. Tyranny or earth of earthly power is going to be one of the worst things that we see happen on earth. And overly powerful humans can be the, the cause of great evils on this planet. So when God's people decide to go with that human institution, they're going to have to handle that in the way that they do. Because humans, quite frankly, can't handle that kind of power. And they tend to abuse it. So it's the exception, not the rule. So the list of things they're going to lose, uh, he will take, he will take, he will take, is in there six times. He'll take, he'll take, he'll take, the number of man. Um, human kings, that's just what they do. They're takers. <laughs> uh, and subjects are servants. So sons, beasts, daughters, land, labor, harvest. Those are the six things he's going to take. And you think that you're going to do better than God? Okay, go ahead and try it. Let's see how that goes. Um, the yoke of humanity is much harder to bear than God's yoke. Matthew 11.30, we just did this morning. For my yoke is easy to bear, and my, the burden I give you is light. The burden that they had during the era of judges, God had very little demands of his people. Like an annual tenth of your harvest, and that's it. We're not talking about necessarily sons, daughters, servants, um, tithes on top of tithes. right? Governments tend to take more than humanity. It, right now, if you, if you tithe 10%, your government takes 30%. So that's how it is even in a democracy, right? So God's kingdom, everybody works and volunteers resources to each other. In an earthly kingdom, those resources are taken. So the more governments take, the more people wonder how they, why they can't get ahead. And when 30% of your resources are being soaked, um, then you start to wonder about your government. Revolutionary War, King George was taken about 20%. So all you got to do as a government, if, if you're in this position, is find a way to take everybody's money as much as you can and then get them to blame it on other people, right? And that's the strategy. It's been the strategy for the history of the world, 7,000 years of human history. You just got to blame it on some other force. And that's why you got to take more of their money is so that we can raise an army to go fight the Corinthians or something like that. It says, you will cry out in that day because of your king. I just like how God clearly says this is going to be your king. He's going to select the king, so he's not leaving his throne. He's still in charge, but he's clarifying this whole king situation is your idea, not God's. Um, the one that it says you have chosen, the choice is to have a king, but we're going to see in the next chapter that God's going to pick the king for them. Uh, we need to note that, I guess, for the next four books as we go through Kings and Chronicles. This entire era was their idea. So as we get into Kings and Chronicles and bad things tend to happen in these eras, all of those bad things can be accredited to this power structure that they're choosing to adopt. Verse 19. Ultimately, this choice to get a king, it's going to lead them to Babylon. They're going to lose their country over this choice. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. 
that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Um, so their king's going to be Saul, and it turns out to be a disaster, right? And God then gives them David, which is, I think, an act of mercy. So he gives them the best king that they think they can have, and it's a failure. And then he gives them the best king that he can find, and it kind of it still turns out, dynasty-wise, it still turns out to go downhill. So God's already established this rule for a king. There's a whole chapter, Deuteronomy 17, that explains how kings are going to operate. So he's already embedded it in the law, knowing this would happen. So here's the five things that an Israelite, Israelite king needs to do under the law. They have to write out a written copy of the Torah, first five books of the Bible, handwritten. So do that when you're a kid. I would think they're doing that when they're young. Keep that copy of the Torah next to them and read it. So they're supposed to do devotions. They learn to fear God, number three. They remain humble. They're not over their brothers as a king lording over them. They're just a brother that's doing a job within the country. And then five, they're never supposed to turn from God's word. They're supposed to do what God tells them to do through the prophets. So those are the five rules of a, a king of Israel. Most of the kings fail on almost all of those things. right? But that's, God set it up, so if you want this system to work, here's how it'll work. But again, the reasons to be like other nations, they have a heart to be like the world instead of having a heart to show the world what it's to be like God and to be God's people in God's country. Our king may judge us. And then that little thing at the end, and fight our battles. And then, you know, you think about that at any level. Like in chapter 7, God handled the Philistines just a few chapters ago. He just handled them all by himself you know, and, and, and gave them all tumors. So God historically has fought their battles for them. So when they say we want somebody to fight our battles, what are they talking about? When they've turned to the Lord and repented, he's always fought their battles. He's always been faithful. So it's not an actual victory that they're praying for. What they're asking for here is to abdicate responsibility because they've had victories. So if they can have someone else to blame for their losses and it's not their hearts, that puts a barrier between them and God. People do this all the time. And I think it's one of the great dangers of the church. It's one of the great dangers of humanity is just that temptation to think that somebody else stands between me and God, right? And it's why you get these super pastors. It's why you've got the Pope. It's, you know, he's the voice of God on earth, you are accountable to God. The Pope doesn't do that for you. Our battles then are our responsibilities throughout the word, but this is what humans want. They want somebody to fight their battles for them instead of fighting their own battles. So they wanted this king. He should look like they thought. They, the, the expectation of what a king would be all, that this is all going to be good, they're filled with this expectation of kingship. And then Jesus explains that, that, uh, that this is the same thing that happens with him. He, Jesus himself shows up and he's not what people expected that, it, that he would be. So you, you see this instance of just how people are, that they presume that they know what they want or what a king should look like, but when God comes himself to be king, he still doesn't fit expectations. Played the flute for you and you didn't dance. I played the dirge for you and you didn't mourn. Doesn't matter what God does. It never meets, people are just discontent. So they presume what God should do. And in this case, they're presuming that a king's going to be a good thing. So God's holy. His works are good. Um, their battles get won. He's been faithful to them throughout everything. 
and they still want to shrug that off and just move their own way. So verse 21, Samuel heard all the words of the people, <clears throat> and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. Here's what the Lord, here's what the people said. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, everybody go home. Every man go to your city. So I... <laughs> That's, you know, God's still on his throne and he's still going to do this, uh, but we're going to start the roller coaster ride of the kings of Israel, and this is how we begin. So they all go home. They leave it with Samuel. We're in chapter 9. Samuel kind of is, is disappointed that they would ask this, but uh, the elder, elders, it seems like, they happily left Samuel to do the work. So they all go home. We have a break in the neighbor narrative here. There's no conjunction between chapters, so... Typically, we see that one chapter just flows into the next. Uh, and in this one, it's kind of a, a, there was a man of Benjamin. It starts a whole new narrative. So we don't know how much time goes between when Samuel says, yep, I'll get a king for you, and when he actually follows through with it. We just, there's a gap there in some sense between the chapters, but we don't know how long it is. Um, either way, it's interesting how they just trust that Samuel is a man of his word, and if he says he'll do it, he'll do it. Verse 1, chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, 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 a Benjamite. He's a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and a handsome son, whose name was Saul. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. For his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. He's a first-rate like, he goes on the cover of the magazines. He is people's most handsome man of the year. Or Israel, Israel people. People, Jerusalem's handsomest man of the year. That's Saul. And he looks great. You look at him, you're like, he's a good-looking man. Even the guys would have man crushes on Saul. He was that good-looking. And, and they notice that I'm saying it because they say it like three times, right? The family's a, a powerful family, verse 1. A man, mighty man of power has to do with influence and wealth. So it's not that he's like physically strong, but the power there is, he comes from a very influential family and he had a choice and a handsome son. Uh, the choice and handsome is two different features. Choice means he's like the pick of the litter. Like if you have a litter of puppies, you think that's the handsomest. He's the choice of the litter. And then handsome is straight up, he's a handsome, good looking man. Chiseled chin, you know, he's got that permanent tan, constant like, little bit of just, you know, gruff on the, on the chin. A scar in just the right place. He could be like Bruce Willis and just guest star for two seconds on a movie, but his face goes on the cover of the movie. <laughs> Saul means asked of God. It's kind of an appropriate name. The people of Israel asked of God for this new king, and, and God gives them what looks good in a worldly sense, in every sense. Kish, the father of Saul, uh, we don't know much about him other than that he's successful, he's profitable, he's a worldly person. We know that he not only has Saul, but when he sends Saul off to do some work, we're going to see in a few verses he sends a servant with him. So he was a guy that had donkeys that just get lost, so he had enough donkeys to where he lost track of some of them. That's an extremely wealthy person in the first century. And then he has, among the servants, he picks one to go with Saul. So he has multiple servants, big household um, and then, of course, Saul, from his shoulders upward, he was taller. This is where we get the phrase, head and shoulders above the rest. He's literally in a room. He's like Abe Lincoln, right? And of every, or if you saw, like, in Virginia, the new governor there, what's his name? Yunkin. 
He's like a foot taller than everybody else. And you're looking at those guys and you're like, they're not midgets. He's just really that tall. And this is how people pick leaders. And I'm not commenting on if Yunkin's going to be a good governor or not. But a lot, it, the average size of a politician is three inches taller than the average size of the community that they're coming from. We tend to pick big people for leadership. We associate in some way that tall people are smarter and more capable than normal sized people. It's a really odd psychological phenomenon. So we have this idea that he's there. We know he's from Benjamin. He's from Benjamin. Every interaction with Benjamin, this tribe has been the tribe that constantly angles for priority or preference. They, they've always, throughout the Bible so far, wanted that position of prestige. So he's given them somebody from the tribe of prestige. Benjamin's the only one of the brothers, by the way, that wasn't born outside the promised land. All the other brothers and tribes, that, but Benjamin was born in the promised land making him better than all the rest. So you have Benjamin, Benjamin, handsome, handsome, tall. This is the worst set of qualifications for leadership in the heavenly sense, but in the worldly sense, wealth, prestige, good looking, super good looking, and tall. Like that's what a king should look like because it's about the figurehead. It's not about the leadership. You know, so from the worldly sense, we get there. So... Oh, this is the other thing. When it comes to height, I just think it's phenomenal. Every inch counts. So in the workplace in America today, each inch above average is worth $789 extra annual income per year on average. So if you're super tall, you make more money than everybody else. Has nothing to do with skill and talent, education, background, parent wealth. Any height is one of the key variables. And this is a study coming out, out of the journey, Journal of Applied Psychology um, of over 8,500 people. Like, it's got a significant sample set that they're pulling this from. And they're just looking for, like, things that correlate with success. Height of person is one of the top correlators with success when you get there. Education's another one, but height is more predictable of, of success when it comes to straight-up wealth. So some people got it easy, right? And short people, sorry. Get ready for less lattes in the morning. The authors posit that part of this is that a lifetime of looking up or down at people has something to do with self-esteem and confidence, that it correlates. That said, Saul's chief attribute to be king, from the text, looks like he was super tall, and that's why they picked him. I just... What's glaringly absent from the first few verses, first two verses, is any mention of God, godliness, or Samuel's choice. Like, it has nothing to do with God, and that's part of the problem. With David, he's a man after God's own heart, and that is part of the criteria for David. Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish. <laughs> I like how we go from handsome, and then we go right to donkeys. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you, one of the servants with you, and arise and go look for the donkeys. Donkeys are really valuable. I make fun of them, but they're the engine behind the agricultural world at this period of history. So you lose a couple donkeys, um, that's a big loss, and you don't just send anybody to go get them, you send your only son to go fetch those donkeys. So normal everyday life on the farm, God's working once again with people who are at work. So he finds Saul doing normal, everyday work for his family. 
And I, we get to this a lot because people think that to find God, you need to walk away from normal life behavior in order to find God. That's just not biblical. So Saul's doing his job, and God finds him while he's doing it. So Kish then is sending his own son. He's going to do that. We see that evidence of multiple servants. Verse 4. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, and they, did, and they were not there. And then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. I don't, this is, it feels very like we're in the middle of a story. You get these, and, and the implication of those verses is he's just kind of that wandering, squiggly line trying to track donkeys. The other thing I thought this is, how hard is it to track donkeys? They eat, they break branches, you can see where they were munching, you can see where their hooves were in the dirt and sand and soil. So either the donkeys are really fast donkeys or they're God-inspired donkeys. And when they took off, they knew where they were going. Zach's giving me the look. You don't think so? Well, these are subtle, sneaky donkeys. You got two intelligent people that can't find them. So God's using these donkeys, I think, stealth donkeys, cloaking device donkeys, and they're traveling all over the place and they can't find them. So... Maybe the donkeys are leaving false trails and backtracking, walking in single file so they can't track their numbers, hiding behind bushes, giggling at Saul as he walks past. The cartoon version of this, you could have some very entertaining donkeys. So Saul introduces, so Saul is introduced as being super good looking and getting outsmarted by donkeys. <laughs> That's what we see. There's this image of what's, so, you know, this is going to be a great king right now. So when they come into the land of Ziph, Zoph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. So we're going to see later they've been gone for three days, verse 20. So three days of looking for donkeys, and they can't seem to find them. Being donkey people, like they know donkeys. They're, these are farmers. They're not, they're not dumb people. So somehow or another, these donkeys have led them. But it could just be, it's all just chance, right? We've seen that in Samuel a lot now. Just things happening by chance. And he said to him, look now, this is the servant talking in verse 6. Look now, there's a city, there is in this city a man of God, and he's an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. He's a prophet. So let us go there, perhaps, and he can show us the way that we should go. And then Saul said to his servant, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver, a quarter, and I, and, I will, and, I give, and I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. How to, they're going to him to find their donkeys. Like, this is a pretty cheap use of a prophet of an almighty God. Do you know where our donkeys are at? Formerly in Israel, when a man went in to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go see the seer. For he, for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. The Israelites were pagan. They came out of Egypt. And they used to use this term seer, but now they're converting to use this word prophet. So their language is changing. And that um, verse 9 is kind of a side note that was added to the text by extremely early commentators. So it's integrated in right now. And then Saul said to the servant, verse 10, Well said, come let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. (laughs) 
at some level, like, Samuel is hearing this side of the story from Saul, and it's almost like the tone of Saul comes through in the writing. It gets to be almost like a children's story, right? Because at some point, Samuel's interviewing Saul to get this side of the narrative because Samuel's doing other things at this particular moment. So Saul's ready to give up on the donkeys, verse 5. The coincidences just keep adding up. It's a normal day. The donkeys got lost. There happens to be a man of God in this city that we're next to. After doing this roundabout route to get there for three days, the servant happens to have heard of this person. So he must know somebody in the area. So all these little coincidences just keep adding up. And this is kind of how God works. This is how God picks a king. Verse 6, there's a nameless servant. Again, we get a nameless person in the narratives of God. It suggests that they see this man of God before they quit on the commandment they've been given from their father. Before we give up on our quest, let's take this one last shot. So Saul's instinct was not to go consult God. It was the nameless servant that had the instinct to go consult of God's prophet. So Saul's not starting out well. The reputation at the fact that he had to say it's an honorable man. What verse is that? Verse 6. That's the, in this city is a man of God, and he's an honorable man. You, you understand what that implies about the state of the priesthood in Israel at this period of time? That they had to distinguish between a man of God and someone that has honor. It's a man of God could mean a super corrupt guy that's just going to rip you off. Because that was the priesthood that we've already seen at this period in history. So by adding the clause, and he's an honorable man, means he's one of the good ones. right? He doesn't name him. There's no hint here that he's honoring God himself. He's just trying to you know, pay a quarter to a seer and get a gypsy-like fortune as to where to look for the donkeys. So verses 7 and 8, they assume that a payment's needed. Again, think of what that says about the priesthood. They're supposed to give away their priesthoodiness for free. They're supposed to just give it out of service, but they've been collecting money off of people even for as little a thing as this. So they've established an entire culture where there's an expectation of giving when you come into the temple or you interact with a priest. Think of that culture. It's horrible. Verse 9, that little footnote, explains this idea of the, the use of a pagan term and a Jewish term getting mixed. It's the first use in the Bible of the word seer, which means to see in the Hebrew, someone who has visions. There were seers that were pagan, and now there were seers that were Hebrew. Prophet is a spokesman or a speaker typically used with the divine. So someone who speaks for God. And that becomes kind of uniquely a Yahweh phenomena. You don't have prophets at this point in history that, that really show up in other cultures. So we've seen prophets in different ways with the Hebrew people. We've seen those that repeat God's word or are spokesmen. We've seen prophets that apply the law or enact wisdom. We've seen prophets that speak on behalf of God with a word of knowledge. We've seen prophets that see things or have visions, which is the kind of prophet they would have called a seer, right? And then we've also seen prophets that predict the future. So prophets that say things that will happen and then they do happen. And there's some indication that the servant knew that about this man. So Saul agrees, verse 10, they say, let's go. Verse 11, and as they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water. And they said to them, is the seer here? Don't forget how good-looking Saul is. So for these young women, Saul comes pulling up 
This is a scene from a romance movie. Think of the women that have been at the well getting water that have ended up marrying some of the Hebrews in the Bible. So there's this kind of tone of they're meeting by the well. And they answered them and said, yeah, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now for today he came to this city because there's a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. So it just so happens after three days of meandering around looking for random donkeys that are stealthy hiding cloaked donkeys hiding in the bushes, laughing at Saul, watching him go by, that there happens to be a man of God in this particular city on this particular day, and, that, and they happen to arrive at just this particular of a time. Maybe all of that is chance, or maybe this is how God works. And these things just line up, you know, these holy appointments. So the women get water. That's a common task in the ancient world. Maybe they're not all wooed by Saul, but Saul's a single guy. Right, And he's coming up with his servant, and they're riding up in here. So they happen to be coming out when these women come out to get their water during the, while, during the day. And they say, um, and notice in verse 12, they say, Hurry now, for today he came to this city. There's an indication here of this is, it, it, you're just in time. Like they show up at just the right time, but they got to hurry a little bit to get over so they run into this guy. All of these things adding up show, show us something about the character of God and how he operates. He's orchestrating all of this. Right servant, right city, right day, right timed, and it couldn't have been timed any better. It's perfect. Verse 13, as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. Do it. Go. Head out. Move it. So it sounds like what they're going to do is a fellowship offering or a peace offering. A burnt offering, you burn the whole offering up, but there's a clear indication that this is going to be a feast on top of the hill. right? So this is like when they meet at Hobbiton and they have the big celebration. Um, so th this is a town feast, and they're lucky. The ladies are probably getting the water for that feast um, and, and getting it all organized. So they went up to the city in verse 14, as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out towards them on his way up to the high place. Sure enough, they run into him. And now we find out that that holy man who was honorable was Samuel. So it just so happens to be Samuel, the judge of Israel, in this little town, doing this little thing out where donkeys get lost. Also, the note in 6 shows that reputation of Samuel. Um, verse 6, that he's set apart as the honorable guy. What a good reputation Samuel has. That people just, they don't even know his name, but they just know he's a decent guy. And you won't, he's not there to just rip you off. In fact, he's going to do quite the opposite here. It seems like Samuel is just going about his business, but we're going to see indicators that Samuel is kind of orchestrating. He knew Saul would show up because he's talking to God. He's got the inside track. So he's doing his business. He's on his rounds. Um, and he's letting God find his king. So it it seems like Saul, Samuel's setting up this whole feast here because he knows he's, the king's just going to come strolling up, donkey searching. How does he know that? And what does Samuel know that we don't, that he's got it so lined up? So Samuel just keeps doing his business instead of trying to manipulate who's going to be king. He's waiting on God to bring the king to him. I love the distinction there. So there's two ways to go wrong on this. One way is to think that everything in life is laden with meaning from God. You know, 
I put my shoes on the wrong feet today. God must not be in it with me today. Like, there's people that err on that side. There's also, I think, a way to err, which is to say nothing in our day-to-day life has anything to do with God. And that's also an error. It seems like God uses the mundane to interact and influence our history of our life. So we use the word discernment. We find that middle ground is to how to discern what's God's voice in our life and what's not. And so when you see God in everything, yes, he's eternal. He's an almighty God. But he's not always talking to us through the shape of our toast or, or designs that happen in the snow or things like that. Um, but God is in charge of our life, and he does sometimes speak to us through very simple ways, very simple assurances. In this particular case, biblically speaking, this whole chapter is a setup. Like, God has set all of this up, and we're supposed to read it that way. The whole thing's a setup. And the only one who knows what's going on is Samuel because God told him. Samuel 12, 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Okay, back to our chapter, verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel. Notice that God does not call him a king that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. The nameless... <laughs> the, so Saul's coming up a man from Benjamin, but the nameless servant is also a man from Benjamin. So he's got to spend the rest of his life thinking, I was one person away from being king of Israel, because Saul didn't see this coming. Now the Lord's ideal um, is that God's going to help him get to this position and where he is. God's going to work with Saul to do that. He's going to work through Samuel to help Saul. God says to Samuel, I will send you the king. Samuel doesn't have to go out doing anything. He just has to receive what God's doing. So there's this clear divine direction that when God's shaping his new nation and he's helping Israel grow in its faith, he's got a key role in how that happens. Um, so Samuel's walking forward, he's doing what he's doing, but he doesn't know who the person is that's going to walk up. He didn't know how handsome Saul would be. He just, you know, but there comes Saul walking through the gate with his you know, sidekick, and Samuel just sees it and says, all right, Lord, there it is, guy from Benjamin. The only guy in our story that's walking with God is Samuel. He's the only guy in our story that has clear direction. And I think that's kind of interesting. Everybody else is kind of walking through life pretty blind as to what God's doing and what God's up to. But the guy who's walking with the Lord has clear communication from God as to what's happening. It says, tomorrow about this time. Clear but not specific. Around this time of day, a guy from Benjamin's going to come hiking up to this city. And that's when you're going to do something. So God is at work. He does the work. And Samuel doesn't have to. So it says, anoint him commander, not king. Save my people. Uh, God's purposes are clear. There is a problem with these Philistines. So the mission of Saul is clear. Fight Philistines. This gets to be important because he doesn't do it. This is where we get the story of David and Goliath. He doesn't go to battle. And he, he sidles and he backs off. But that's the mission. The mission for Saul is super clear. It says, save my people. Their cry has come to me, so we have a reason for that purpose listed there too. Verse 17 So when Samuel saw Saul, that's a tongue twister, the Lord said to him, there he is. Now he gets specifics. The man of whom I spoke to you, 
this one shall reign over my people. And the servant just missed it by that much. So here's another still small voice talking to Samuel. They're in the town, so he meets them on the road. That means that Samuel's not at the altar or at the tabernacle, and God's still speaking to him, even when he's out and about living his life. So he gets a small voice. It says the Lord said to him. There's clarity in it. It's a reminder of what God already said. There's a direction to it, and there's purpose to it. And I think those are some of the things that you know God's talking to you in that kind of place. There's, there's a certainty of who's talking in those areas because it sounds like God. The reminder there is the man of whom I spoke to you. God is his own second witness. God speaks to you once. God speaks to you twice. Like you'll hear it happen, and we see that in the Bible that God doesn't leave doubts with his servants. He affirms himself when he talks to people. So the first voice would have been, you know, the man of whom I spoke to you, so at some point in the past, and then the second voice is the one he gets right now. That's a second witness to what's going on. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate, and he said, please tell me, where is the seer's house? So Saul doesn't know anything. Like, he doesn't have a house here. He lives in Ramah. So he's just, Saul's just really stumbling into this situation. He also comes near to Samuel in the gate, doesn't recognize that he's the seer. So Saul's got expectations about what a seer looks like that is not meeting those expectations. Where Saul looks like a king, Samuel clearly doesn't look like a seer or this man of God. So Samuel must have not been as tall and handsome as Saul. Or Saul is just not that bright, right? That could be it too. It would be hard to imagine that you wouldn't recognize who the seer was because they're all excited about this feast they're having. Samuel answered Saul, shows him a lot of grace. And he said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and I will tell you all that's in your heart. So we're going to feast together. We're going to have a meal, Saul. But as for your donkeys, forget about your darn donkeys. As for your donkeys... They were, that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they've been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and all of your father's house? This would be a weird thing to hear when you're just out looking for donkeys and you just want to pay a quarter and find out where your donkeys are. And then the seer suddenly says, isn't the entirety of Israel's history on your shoulders? And not only that, like Saul answers and says to him, am I not a Benjaminite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family is the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then do you speak like this to me? Right? So, verse 18, they meet in the gate. The gate's kind of the marketplace or town center of ancient cities. It's where they kind of let people in and out of the city. So it's where all the traders or merchants would be. Um, he, he says in verse 19, I'm the seer, go up before me. So he gives him these honors. He honors him by saying, I want Saul to lead the way. That would have been an honor to lead the way to the feast. He's going to eat with them, so that's another honor he gives the donkey searcher. And then he says, I'm going, to, I'm, going to tell you what's, I'm going to tell you what's in your heart. I'm going to put words, the word of God, and I'm going to speak God's words right to your heart. Three honors he gives them right up front. And then he says, don't worry about the donkeys, because he, he's showing a little bit of supernatural power here. Samuel had no way of knowing that Saul was looking for donkeys if it wasn't God that told him. So this is what's called a word of knowledge. It's a kind of prophecy. So he's not predicting the future. He's just knowing something that you would not know unless you had God tell it to you. So when this happens, Saul is probably 
that probably hits them pretty significantly. Like, wait, what? What did you just say? How'd you know I was looking for donkeys? So there would be this little surreal moment. He knows that they were lost three days ago. So there's, again, that past sight, not foresight. So he's seeing like he knows the length of time. Is it not on you? So Samuel kind of reveals the truth of things, but he does it uh, with an illusion, right? Is not Israel on you? And he shows, it shows Saul's humility at one level. It, verse 1 implies this might be false humility because he does come from a powerful family. But all the same, even if it's false humility, Saul shows modesty at this point. He's not going to brag about how big his family is and how wonderful it is. And then when Saul says, why then do you speak like this to me, implies that Saul's a little set back by this prominence that's being offered. Says that Saul starts out in the right place. And over the next two chapters, Saul does start out in the right place. He later kind of becomes a biblical villain, but at this point, he's a modest guy. Like, who am I to do this sort of thing? I'm just the guy looking for my donkeys. And now all of a sudden, you're letting me lead the way to the feast? Verse 22. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and he brought them into the hall and he had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. So another honor, he lets them sit in the place of honor. There were about 30 people. So it tells you about how big these cities are. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part, he got in his upper thigh, and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is. What was kept back, it was set apart for you. Eat for, until this time, it's been kept for you since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. There's a ton going on in that passage. He's not just giving him a nice piece of thigh. That's not, he's saying some things to him about the role of Saul and the idea that even the entire kingship was something that God held back from Israel for a season. Like, and that kingship was held back for Saul. And what's going on with this as Samuel's talking to him is he's, there's tons of meaning laced into this, right? So again, a, a chief honor of where he gets to sit. The place of honor would have been at the right hand of the, the head of the feast. So whoever was the chief person at the feast, Samuel, he'd sit right at his right hand. Jesus is said to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So this position of honor is significant. Um, it seems like Samuel almost ignores the town that he's in. Like he came here because he knew Samuel would, or Saul would be here. And when he talks about the cook, this is what I said to the cook. To sit. So Samuel was making preparations in the past tense. He was here maybe the, the rest of the day giving instructions to the cook. And I want you to take this nice piece and set it apart. Who am I setting it apart for? Don't worry about that. Just set it apart. And then in this passage, we get the other side of that kind of a conversation where he says, this is the person that I, we're setting it apart for. So sometimes God sets things apart for things we don't know about, but the provision's already been made before we even get there. And the way that this is orchestrated, it has nothing to do with Saul at all. Every piece of honor that Saul's going to get here is not his own doing. It has nothing to do with how tall he is but it has everything to do with God elevating him to a position. That, not only that, this whole city gets this strange donkey herder and suddenly gets this honor from the, the head of Israel and gets elevated. So you start saying, who is this? There was some romantic comedy we were watching where, or was it just a trailer you showed me? 
where some superstar singer decides to marry somebody in the audience. But then all the media in the trailer starts going, well, who did she marry? This is with J-Lo, wasn't it? All right? And it's like, well, who's this guy that suddenly is now going to marry this huge, important person? That's what this dinner party's like. Who's this guy that Samuel is setting up for us that gets the place of honor and the, the choice meet? So Saul had to just be absolutely jaw-dropped, stunned when this happens to him. This had to just be a, a moment. And you wonder, like, if Saul's thinking, what's going on? They must have me mistaken with somebody else, right? Wouldn't you think that thought was going through his head? Or Saul, at some point, is realizing this was all orchestrated. You guys all knew I was coming. You knew I had lost my donkeys. You knew for how many days. And all this stuff that I thought was ra random was absolutely part of a perfect plan. Maybe Saul, God's trying to show Saul that nothing is his to orchestrate. And if he just follows God's plan, things will go well with his kingship. But Samuel's making a visual display of this guy named Saul getting elevated. Uh, it says in verse 24, so Saul ate with Samuel that day, not just a mealtime. We do meals like a half an hour and we're, we're in and we're out, maybe an hour at a restaurant. But not all cultures do that. Some cultures, the meal lasts three hours. In this particular case, these feasts would last days. So they're eating, they're drinking, they got people coming around filling their cups all day. And the point is just to fellowship. So we don't get, we're not privy to those conversations between Saul and Samuel, but they're talking all day. And Saul's going to leave here knowing that he's the anointed king. So I'm sure Samuel is trying to explain all this and maybe giving him some tips on what God expects in a kingship, but none of that is going to be recorded for us to know what it is. Good questions for heaven. What did you talk about with Saul for that entire day? It seems like Samuel just kind of focuses on Saul the whole visit. Listen to the next verses. Verse 25, when they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. So they stay up all night with lawn chairs on the roof, and they just hang out, look at the stars, and they talk all night. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on top of the house saying, Get up! So Saul falls asleep on top of the house. Get up that I might send you on your way. Time to go. And Saul arose and both of them went out and he and Samuel. So now they're best buddies. They get to know each other. They've had that chance to meet. They hit it off. Likely they, um, you know, got discussions on what godly leadership looks like. Like that would have been conversations I would want to hear at some point. So maybe they kept recordings and they're hidden in some vault somewhere. God picks the person they expect. Um, and this is one way to look at Saul, and just little hints we're getting of who Saul is at the beginning of it all. God picks the person that the world expects will be the best possible chance at a successful king. And it turns out to be a failure without God's help. Um, but that sets up the request for an earthly kingdom that's ruled by a guy that God picks. Right? So let's have an earthly kingdom that we pick. Then let's have an earthly kingdom with somebody God has picked. And then that doesn't work out so great. So that, that kingship of David goes a few generations. And that sets up a request for an earthly kingdom ruled by God himself. And Jesus low shows up. But he doesn't rule an earthly kingdom. So again, it's not what pe it doesn't work that way. And that sets up a request for a heavenly kingdom ruled by a heavenly king. 
which we haven't quite got to yet, historically speaking. You see what God's doing in history? Like, there's a pattern here. He's conditioning humanity for a kingdom that he rules. And he's given us every chance to do it ourselves that's not going to work. And that our expectations for that kingdom keep getting set up and they keep failing. The one thing we can know as, as believers is whoever your favorite political party puts up for president in the next election, he is not going to be what we thought it would be. He will or she will fall short of what God wants for people. So in that sense, good Christians, we are not Democratic Republicans. We are not Republic people. We actually are theocratic monarchists. What we want is God himself on the throne of our lives. That's the political office we're rooting for because our hearts should be getting refined and prepared because with every failure of humanity to make this world work, we keep pining for the kingdom of God to come on earth. And that's the message of the whole Bible. So when we get Saul, it's not that Saul fails, it's that he never had a chance. But I think that what I'm walking away from these chapters with is God gave Saul every opportunity possible that he could succeed. But there's limits to humanity. And that's what we're going to see with Saul. But from a worldly sense, he had all the pieces he needed to be successful, including Samuel hanging out with him side by side, having some cherry Cokes, drinking some of that you know, leftover beef, and, and hanging out on the rooftop with her feet kicked up and a nice ice cooler next to him. You know, Sandy Patty playing on the radio. You think he has every chance to start off and do it the way that God would have him do it, but he fails in this. But we don't think that he failed because he was unequipped. And God, I think, is just that way. He's going to equip and give Saul every opportunity because that's what he does. And he does the same thing with David. He does the same thing with us, even as Jesus appeared on earth to be our king, that there's a heavenly kingdom we get to choose. And he gives us every chance. There's no reason to not accept Jesus. And I think that's where the justice of God comes through. It comes in his mercy, too, and how he administers it. So we'll wrap up the chapter with verse 27. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. You know, let me talk to you about just you and me. And he went on, but you stand here a while that I may announce you to the word of God. Let me share something from God with you. And we're going to cut it off like that's a cliffhanger, right? Let me just say one more thing. So they've had all night to talk. Saul starts with honor. He starts with the word of God. And it gives him the best possible place to start. So even this nameless servant now is gone. They're all by themselves. And we're going to see next coming up that there's going to be an anointing of Saul, but that's not his coronation. They're two different things. And the way in which God makes a king, I think this is really interesting. The anointing is going to be this private, intimate ceremony just with Samuel. Same thing happens with David. The anointing is very private. Um, and then there's the coronation, which is the big public event. And the same thing happens with our salvation. Our salvation is just between us and God, very intimate, sweet, and private. But then he calls us to baptism, which is a big public event, which we share with the people in our lives, right? So there's these kind of ideas. So it's similar to salvation and baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't make you saved. And coronation doesn't make Saul the king. Anointing makes him the king. He's the anointed one. This relationship, this private meeting with Samuel, I'm, I'm setting this up like we could have maybe done a third chapter tonight, but think of how this affects Samuel, Saul when he gets jealous of David. 
because he thinks he, like David might have been anointed in this private way that I, King Saul, wouldn't know about, just like I was. I was anointed by Samuel, and he knows that God's left him because Samuel's not talking to him anymore. So as a king, he's just floating out in the nether, and it had to drive him crazy that at one point, God was working with him, and now God's not. So then Saul would naturally think, who's God's anointed? And when he sees David come in with joy and he's ripping on his harp, his electric harp, um, that's got to be kind of a moment for Saul to realize this guy, this short person that doesn't have the chiseled jaw, that's who you're picking, God? And the, the jealousy of Saul just wells up at that point. And it's hard to understand that if we don't understand the psychology of the donkey herder. From a rich, he's a rich son, right? And he's elevated because he should be elevated in his head. Of course I should be king of Israel. Who else? Right? And that initially starts with humility, but the humility is going to fade quick. Um, anyways, the anointing becomes this sweet washing, and so we're going to get to that next week. Um, Samuel, the other thing to walk away with tonight, think of how humble Samuel is being in this whole thing. At this point, he's the judge of Israel. And he's just going to hand off not only leadership of Israel, but it seems like he's willingly participating in handing off the form of government they have. At no other point in history does government just get handed off between two guys. Right? No war, no battle, no rebellion, no revolutionary war. It's just Samuel saying, not only can you have the government, like we can create your own government, we're going to change governments and you're going to be at the head of it. And I'm going to go away. So the closest thing you get to that is, is people like George Washington saying he wouldn't be king, right? That there's just this peaceful transition. But that was right after a Revolutionary War. So the handoff of authority that Samuel is giving here shows, tells us a lot about Samuel. Unlike Eli, he's not going to let his sinful kids take over the kingdom. So Samuel's finishing. He can't control his kids. He's raised them right, gave them good names, but he can't stop what they're going to do. If Grant and Katie go off the rails... At this point, I can't control that. But I can make sure they don't inherit anything God's given to me, Like, right? So don't go off the rails because parents want to see their kids inherit as much as they can. But Samuel does. He doesn't seem to be making an effort to pick his kids because he could have just picked Joel as the new king. But he doesn't do that. He prayerfully goes to God. He hands it up. So the next two chapters, Saul and Israel are going to start off on the right path. Chapter 12 is coronation. Chapter 13, he's going to screw everything up. That's where we're headed. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your grace. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these examples in the Bible that show us how you interact with humanity. Lord, help us to get better at hearing your voice. Uh, that there's no one in this room that doubts what God's called them to do. And Lord, if there's doubt in those things, Lord, I just pray that you speak to people's hearts through your word, uh, through other believers. Uh, Lord, that your voice is confirmed. They're hearing it from multiple places. Lord, that they're not ignorant and blind to your working in their life, nor are they actively reading signs and everything that you didn't put there. So Lord, help us to be sensitive and discerning about when you're talking and how you're talking. Lord, help us not to be drawn to the tall and handsome or the tall and pretty. Help us to be drawn to people that love your heart. Um, that, we, that we follow leaders that humble themselves to you before anything else. 
So Lord, help this uh, with the Holy Spirit. You've given us more revelation than Samuel and Saul had, and we have more accountability. So Lord, help us to give our hearts to you and to follow and work with and serve um, people that also give their hearts to you. And Lord, help us to find one another with discernment and reason. Help us, Lord, to see your orchestration in everything in our lives. And this week, as we go another six days in between Bible study, Lord, help us this week to not be blind to what you're doing in our lives, that we see each interaction as an opportunity to show grace and love and mercy, um, and that those things, Lord, are an act of worship and a way in which we can bless your name. Uh, Lord, teach us your ways and mold us and shape us to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.